Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. As always, we are joined by our resident ephesiologist, uh, Michael. Uh, how are things for you, Michael? Are you able to keep your eyes open after all of your recent travels? I know, barely. I feel like it. I'm going to fall asleep on this one, but it, it probably won't happen because we have one of the most exciting guests that we've ever had on our podcast with us today. Ever. He's, he's going to keep me awake. <laughs> and that is true. I would like to take the moment to introduce our guest, uh, third timer here on the pod, Jeff wow. Christofferson. A trifecta. Uh, yeah, seriously. Uh, Jeff is the executive director of Church Planting Canada, and he is also the executive director of the CNBC, the Canadian National Baptist Convention. I botched it enough times before we actually hit record. So did I get that right, Jeff? Yeah, you brought tears to my eyes. That was so beautiful. That was fantastic. We're going to edit yeah. out the moments of the wailing and the, and the wiping of the tears. All right. Now, welcome back. Uh, Jeff, we are so glad to have you on. Uh, I have a few questions for you. Uh, in a moment, we are going to talk about the joy of Jeff's new book, Once You See, uh, but not yet, because I wanted to pick your brain a little bit, uh, not just how are you, although generally I would like to know how you're doing, but um, can you fill us in on all of the fun that seems to be happening in the Canadian church planting world, because from the outside looking in, it looks like God's doing some fun stuff up there. You know, <laughs> it's interesting you say, you say that because I think it's true. And, um, and I think part of the reason for that is the uh, kind of the modern church planting paradigm that, that we've been working with for a long time has mostly run out of steam. And, uh, and so anything that requires, religious memory is um, falling flat. And so planters are uh, thinking differently. And uh, and so it is exciting to see a, a church plant that is planting from the harvest instead of, you know, mm. planting and hoping to get to the harvest at some point. And, uh, and, and from that, I think it's, there's some pretty neat things happening. So it is exciting. Oh, you're making my face cringe, Jeff, when you said that planting in hopes to get to the harvest because that that seems to me at least uh at some in some way still a model that we're implementing on this side of the border yeah but you're what, what i'm hearing you say is that on the other side of the border things are shaping up a little bit differently well i mean i won't mention names but like there i know for instance a planter who planted twice in california both extremely successfully if you measure it in terms of numbers mm -hmm. um like planted and and soon became mega churches twice and um and he uh moved to this side of the border and and did pretty much uh his same methodology and on his easter launch he had one no kidding wait yeah. one person what one person and um other than his core team Wow. wow. And uh and we're talking tens of thousands of dollars in effort. And so wow. for one. Yeah. That's crazy. So like, it it it's a different so so 
people are, you know, instinctively knowing that that's not working. And so um, it's fun to see a lot of uh, just creativity about how to how to leverage whatever tools or contacts or whatever they have uh, in, in some kind of a gospel push in, in church planting. And it's been fun to watch. So well, what, that, you, what, what would you say then, Jeff, is you mentioned, again, kind of in passing, um, all the old methods have kind of fallen flat on their face yeah. and everyone's realized they're not moving. And so now they're coming back to this, let's pursue the harvest. Um, how, how, how did Canada get there? How did Canada get to that place where it's like, hey, this method has been tried and it is no longer, it's been tried and found wanting. Uh, let's try something else. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at evan evangelicals as part of the Canadian population from World War II till 2016, it was a pretty steady 12 to 14%. And as the population grew, evangelicalism grew in term, in a corollary way. But um, from 2016 until 2020, um, it has actually fallen to 4.8%. No, lots of reasons. Dark. Yeah, lots of reasons for it. But what is even more troubling from three different surveys, Flourish, Cardis, and Flourishing Churches, Cardis, and Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, um, the, you ask which you ask the same question to all religious groups. Um, who is the most helpful to to society in Canada? Evangelicals consider themselves the most helpful, um, more more than any other group thinks of themselves. We think of ourselves the highest. If you ask the wow. question, which group is the most dangerous? Um, the rest of Canada thinks evangelicals are, uh-huh. and uh, and we um, and it, and. and a lot of people interpret that data wrongly. I think they interpret that as well. That's because we, you know, espouse the gospel, no. and um, uh, and yeah, no, we we're we're not enjoying a bad reputation because we look too much like Jesus. Um, we're we're we have that reputation because you know we think we we go back to the. 16th century as the high water mark, and, and we try to re- re- replicate that instead of what the first church did, which I know you guys teach all the time in the first, second, third century, and um, and so I'm I'm optimistic that uh, I mean what I'm seeing here, and I've talked to some friends in Australia and similar kinds of things that we're going to be smaller and poorer and pure and um and ready for something and so that's kind of what how i'm preparing our denomination is okay let's get back to the main things and and disciple making being chief amongst them mm. well, how's, your, how's your denomination taking that <laughs> everyone i mean i mean intuitively everyone knows this right and so we're just saying okay Instead of counting outputs, which we always do for metrics of success, let's count inputs. Let's count the things that that produce fruit, and not the fruit. And because um, we cheat to get the fruit, and uh, and so if if we look at the inputs about you know what is it to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and what do they do? Uh, I think I think we'll see the outputs. Just like you are in India, you are seeing in Southeast Asia around the world. Um, incredible, incredible stories. And so 
we're 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 getting back to that. So I think there'll be harder days, tougher days, more persecution, but um, but uh, a better church. Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, in the midst of you being where you are in Canada with the executive director roles and kind of all the different hats you get to wear and interacting with so many different people in the midst of that, you decided to write a follow-up to your original novella, Venal Dogmata, and you have recently written Once You See. Why? What what got into your brain and in your heart that said, I must put pen to paper? <laughs> I need to chase after this. What what caused you to write another book? A novel? Yeah. Even? yeah. Well, two reasons. One is I had a lot of people contacting me saying, we use your book all the time in this in this class or in this with this discipleship group. But um, I really would like to know what uh, how they got to that movement. How did they get there? What was going on? And um, and so I thought, okay, I could I could write that and answer that. And um, and then there was a secondary thing, and that is, you know, just the power of story. The things that I'm writing about, I don't know if all of them. In fact, very not probably none of them are new. They're they're not things that no one has. In fact, I've written on most of these things at different different points, but the power of a story r- rolls around in our heads, and I really just sense that people need to see and feel the difference between a church focused on itself and a church as a vehicle towards God's kingdom. And they're two very different kinds of churches, and so I wanted to be able to contrast in story form, you know, the difference between the two. And, uh, and so that's why. Now, I've already torn through this book. I have left my appropriate Amazon review saying that I love it. And I think you all should read it. Uh, but Jeff, for those who haven't yet found this book or heard about it, besides those differences between uh, those two types of churches, how, how would you describe this book to somebody? What, what, is, what is its content? It's, I, I kind of wrote it as a expanded Patrick Lencioni idea. I I start off with the framework and I give seven temptations and I frame them in ways that um, normally we would actually say, you know, we'd we'd sort of puff out our shirt a little bit and be proud about them. And uh, but I help people say that, you know, those aren't things to be proud about. And here's a kingdom corrective that we should be should be looking at. And uh, so I outline these seven temptations, and then I weave them through a storyline of three very different protagonists. I have a um, the one from Venal Dogmata, that same that same man, Luca Lewis, an African American son of a pastor, who watches what church is and what it did to his dad, and um, and really has no no appetite for more of that. And really, no appetite for church or or being around Christians, and um, and then there is a second story, and that is uh, a son of a very large, influential Texas pastor, who is now the son is pastoring a Atlanta mega church that's best years were twenty years before, and um, and he's looking for a silver bullet. He's looking for some way to get back on top and earn his dad's approval and all that. And um, and then there's a third third leader, and that is a, a Yemeni 
law student who um, comes to Christ in university and um, joins a the underground church and is terrorized and persecuted and um, and ends up fleeing to the United States as a refugee. And um, and his life intersects with these other two men. And um, and one sees who he is, and the other sees only an immigrant. And uh, and one you uh, employs and includes him in his team, and he becomes the Sherpa for a movement. And the other guy has to go through the meat meat ground grinder one more time. And so that's the that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Mm. And as you're hearing people comment on the book. Which of the temptations of the seven, which of them do you hear most resonating with people? Yeah, it, um, well, I don't, I don't know if I hear a single one because, yeah, I mean, so many of them are, they're interconnected. They express themselves in different ways, but they're interconnected with the assumption that church and kingdom are the same. Mm. And local church and my local church basically is the kingdom. And um and that that shows itself in in so many of these temptations. Yes. And so um I think they kind of they come as a package in many cases. Hmm. That makes sense? It it does to me. I, I feel so I, I appreciate the way in which you wrote this book and that you hit the seven temptations at the top. And then as you read I, the reader, I just got lost in the story, right? And and I didn't get to see, okay, and now this temptation is being called the right. task. And now right. this temptation, right? You didn't make, at, le- at least in the version I read, didn't have big, uh, now this is the time that I'm dealing with this one temptation. Please pay yeah, attention. Yeah, no, I, I did my best not uh, to show and not tell. Yes. And, and, uh, yeah. And that you did. Uh Jeff, I think I told you, I definitely told a lot of people, your book messed me up for quite a few days um, in a very, very healthy way. And raising my eyes up back to that kingdom view, raising mm-hmm. my eyes up to the, what am I about? Have I gotten lost in my local, mm-hmm. I don't want to say fiefdom, right? Like I have no yeah. life. There is no yeah. fiefdom to yeah. be over, but uh, being over what God has given us here in Houston. Sometimes I miss it, right? Sometimes I, sometimes I miss the kingdom for the tasks in front of me. Right. And, you know, the book had me in tears um, trying to, I felt the Holy spirit trying to use it to remind me what I need to be about, how I need to chase after these things. Um, I've never written, I've written a lot like you guys have. And, um, but I've never written anything like this before. Like I, I outlined the book and, and I had to get, you know, I had to get my character from here to here. Right. And I didn't know, I sat down to write and I had no idea what I was, how I was even going to write it. And, um, and then I was, you know, lost and then I was done and, um, and I would read it and I would have tears going, how, where did this come from? And uh, so it was one of the most uh, spirit-led tasks I think I've ever done is actually the writing of that book. So who, this is what I wanted to know. 
who did you resonate most with? And I don't mean that maybe in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. character did you see most in the pages? I would be a between Jimmy and Luca, those two. Um, I, you know, I still feel the, the pull of the win as, as we would des- describe it in the corporate environment of yeah. church. And, um, yet I have this apostolic impulse that wants to fight against that. And so some, a hybrid between those two. Chantel, Luca's wife. Yeah. I just described my wife. If you oh, see that's her, good. that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So then I would say for the listeners who do end up, I would encourage you to go read it. And then when you come back and you re-listen to this podcast, now having a frame of reference, uh, I found myself squarely and sadly in the Tom role, wanting Tom to be Luca. Yep. Yep. And uh, so there's this is not a spoiler alert. Jeff and I will not talk about the book. We will not ruin it for you. But that was my comment for Jeff so he could just knowingly nod and say, I see you. And and I feel seen. <laughs> I felt seen in these pages. So and 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 it left with Tom Butt's future. Uh, you can't kind say of anything else. You you yeah. can't say anything else. You, no, you got to read the book. You got to read the book <laughs> for these characters uh, that you find yourself absolutely uh, taken in between. Uh, I I would ask for you, Jeff. Um, again, the book just came out December first, um, right? But it has been already distributed widely uh, among church planters and and kingdom minded folk who are, are tearing through it what feedback are you getting from people who are reading it? What aspect of the book, um, maybe even character are you hearing most is resonating? Oh, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I was hoping for, not for a sales tech uh, kind of position, but I'm finding a lot of pastors or leaders are buying a book, reading it, and then buying a case of books for their leaders. And uh, and are planning on going through you know, that discussion study at the end of it to, as a, a reorienting, and um, I think I think the the obvious answer is the Jimmy character is where a lot of us find ourselves, where we we have a hard time differentiating the body of Christ in a worship service, and um, and the success of that worship service is is how we how we, we gauge our success as a, as a leader. And so I think um, that's where most of us probably would struggle and identify with the most. And I would even tag on to what you're saying. Again, I'm going to go talk with personal uh, association with that Jimmy aspect is, is not even just the, uh, the value placed in success uh, or the win uh, but identity, <laughs> like mm. I am yep. this person, I fit this role, uh, as my success in ministry. So goes my own value, my own worth. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, there's or, a lot and, and the opposite as well. Yes. As, yeah. Well, I had a chuckle. I mean, reading through it because here I am in Houston, Texas, and you have Jimmy being from the South in the South. And I was like, I wonder how many times Jeff had to change the name of Jimmy because he didn't want to get too close to a name of somebody he knows and likes and then be like, 
Jeff, were you writing about me and you having to defend yourself? I had the hardest time picking a church name. Okay. That 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 wasn't someone else's church that was, you know, it's like, oh man, I, I bet you I had five or six names in that manuscript and then discovered, oh no, I can't do that. I had to change it all the way through. And <laughs> that's so funny. Well, yeah. uh, so Jeff, with this book, kind of what's what's your hope, what's your dream? for it as it kind of this child of yours now has legs and is walking around like what what are you hoping is the future of the impact of this book so i'm a you know i'm a big believer in um rich robinson's kind of paradigm of change and um where where you go from unlearning to metanoia to relearning mm. unlearning to to a new mind and you can't go from unlearning to relearning. It just doesn't work. And um, and so the operating systems that we have to unlearn first and then repent of, um, there's there's a there's a process of that. And it's not quick and it's not easy, and it takes you know it takes unity and courage. And um and so my hope is that as people go through um some would just take the little discussion guides in the back and it might be a, a bunch of pastors perhaps together in some some affinity or geography saying let's get together on Wednesdays at you know Applebee's <laughs> and let's discuss this and and really honestly and openly sort of work through that U curve that unlearning repenting relearning and then um I don't know if you know Lance Ford and uh, he wrote The Starfish and the Spirit and Unleader. Uh, okay. And uh, he and Rich Robinson, uh, Movement Leaders Collective out of uh, Scotland, are um, putting together a uh, training cohort for le for churches. And so actually church leaders together in a church can actually, in a cohort guided by them, they're putting a process and a curriculum together for that. And so it's it's... We're used to, you know, let's try this idea. Let's tr oh, let's try that idea. And this is more than a new, what I'm talking about is more than a new program or a new way of doing something. It's actually a fundamental metanoia that has to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's what I'm I'm hoping and praying for, that the the book would give a picture of what could be. And it is. I mean, what I described, I've Absolutely. seen. Everything, everything I've described, I've seen. And, um, but, uh, the, uh, in fact, many of the stories that I actually described are actual true stories with names changed and, you know, adapted, but, um, to get, to get to experience that you, you, you have to become a different church and, uh, which requires a metanoia, a mind, a new mind, a new blow, blowing of the old mind and a, and a, you know, an absolute, like the the idea of like the image of once you see something, you can't ever unsee it. You can't ever be happy here again. <laughs> and so I'm hoping to give people a taste of, of seeing something and then going, how do I bring others with me? And so that would be my, my biggest win. Them's big goals, my friend. <laughs> that is, uh, I'm really thankful that God gave you the, the site that is definitely far farther than just straight ahead down the line, but this is way up and, and bigger and further, I think, than uh, you within your own power could kick. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Oh, what are yeah. you seeing? Yeah, Jeff, what are you seeing? Because you talk about Rich's model of unlearning and relearning. What are you seeing in the church today that we need to unlearn? Mm. Well, I mean, Michael, I, well, we don't have time for that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, well, the, like, for instance, my my tribe, one of the temptations I call philosophicalism. And, um, and that's like the idea of belief mutating from a, from a verb to a noun. Um, I, and so we fight about the beliefs that we have. I have this belief and you you have this belief and yours is heretical or whatever. And, um, and in the New Testament, we're not given that permission. Like, um, belief, as you well know, is a verb. It's a, it's something you do. It's not something you own. It's not a noun. It's a verb. And, um, and so I think we got to start there because what, what I see around the world, which you've seen is many examples of people's belief being verbs and then the power of Christ sort of wor working through that that simple belief. And if we started there, it fixes, you fix one thing as you fix 10 things. That's one thing. If we fixed, uh, it would actually have a radical, radical effect, I think on, on our churches. I mean, there's lots, I mean, the, if I just looked at that, that list there, I mean, I hear the, the seven, I'll do it real quick. Philosophicalism, basically what I just talked about, the, the, we own a belief, professionalism, where we segregate the idea of priesthood of the believer into, you know, personal spiritual access instead of, instead of the priesthood of the believer, I'm actually called to be a minister. And, um, and, you know, and so that whole idea of just unleashing the saints, um, presentationalism, the body of Christ morphing it primarily into a worship service. And, and we staff around that and we, we put most of our energies around that and, and, you know, we're missing our passivism is that personal religious preferencing presses, the preferences that we have trumping Jesus's courageous search and rescue mission that he has for us. So we might say, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's welcome here, but we're, we're going to actually structure ourselves in a way that we're the most comfortable. And, um, and so you know, the whole idea of the 99, you know, safe and going after the one where I'm in Canada, it's, it's the four that are safe and the 96 that are out there. And we still structure for the four. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's crazy. Uh, I have a, one of the P's that we talk about is pragmat pragmatism. And that is, you know, the win is measured by what we can measure locally. And our brand advancement outranks the kingdom revolution revelation in our city by a long shot. And, um, and so we really, you know, we want to win. We don't really want other people to lose. Just, we just want to win. And, uh, and so we're very pragmatic at it. And, and we, we miss the big, the big idea. Uh, the sixth P I reference is partisanism. And that is we have earthly loyalties that become more dominant than our kingdom allegiance. And we certainly have seen that in spades recently. And then the last one is what I just call paternalism. And that is the, the hubris of the Western culture, the cultural superiority over the global church. And so we've got people driving taxi cabs and driving Ubers and washing dishes here in North America who have paid the price to be a radical follower of Jesus overseas. And they're here 
because their lives and their family were threatened. And they don't even, they look at our churches and they don't even know how to fit into it. And, uh, and like, it's like apples and oranges and, um, entirely different. And maybe, yeah, different, different operating systems, different priorities, different everything. And, um, and maybe we shouldn't pat them on the head and say, you know, nice little fella, but actually sit at their feet and say, teach us. And, um, and I think we might be better off. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing all seven of those. Thank you for going over essentially just kind of the start of this book um, that that spins that tale uh, of woe or of joy wherever you fall kind of in this descriptor. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being on our podcast again. Time number three. So we'll wait until you do something else revolutionary. And then we'll bring you back on for the fourth time. That uh, might just be next week. No, true. yes. <laughs> true. No, I, I literally I, thank you. These are these are some fierce coattails that I write on. You all, I hope you as listeners understand that that between Michael and Jeff, the two of whom fall asleep and wake up written writing new books and having new ideas to chase after and build organizations around. Like uh I just like hanging out with your brilliance. So nice. You know, I appreciate. I think if you very much, if you talk to us, you're, you're going to hear uh, a story of weakness and God's grace, and uh, and that's certainly in my case. Mm, amen. I would say you serve an amazing King that uses the most broken mm. and does amazing things for His good and His glory. So, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us your most recent tale. Uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, to the listeners, thanks for joining us. We appreciate having you along for the ride. So jump off to wherever you buy books and go get Once You See by Jeff Christofferson. Uh, if you would like to connect with Jeff, Jeff, how would some connect with you? Um, perhaps just my email, the easiest way, which is jeff at jchristofferson.org. And um, that's spelled J. <laughs> C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-O-N, jchristofferson.org. That's fantastic. Well, uh, listeners, if you want to reach him, go for it there. If you want to continue to keep up with all things Ephesiology, go to our website, ephesiology.com, and peruse how you can continue to get engaged with us and join us in the conversation, uh, either on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you find us. So for Jeff, for Michael and myself, Thank you for joining us on the Ephesiology Podcast.